Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning. I'm Andrea Orsi. I'm the Associate Chair of Education. Dr. Salazar is away collaborating with his research partners. So I have the distinct pleasure of introducing today's Grand Rounds. For announcements this week, I'd like to remind everybody about PJ Day. Pajama Day is happening this Friday, so please wear your pajamas in support of our pediatric hematology oncology patients. So I will be introducing Gary Lapidus. He is the Director of Research Operations and Development. He's also the co-director of the Office of Advanced Practice Providers, and he finds time to work in our emergency department as well. Thank you, Dr. Orsi. And uh, the Department of Research Operations and Development is very pleased to sponsor this Grand Rounds. And I'm pleased to introduce our two speakers. Uh, This morning, Dr. Nancy Dunbar is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Connecticut Children's in the Division of Endocrinology and Diabetes. She received her bachelor's degree from Amherst College, her medical degree from UConn, and completed her pediatric residency at Tufts University in Bay State. Fellowship training in pediatric endocrinology at Yale uncovered her passion for metabolic bone disease, particularly hypophosphatemic rickets. In addition to general endocrine and diabetes, Nancy directs the bone density program at Connecticut Children's and provides care to patients with metabolic bone disease, both here and at Shriners Hospital for Children in Springfield, Mass. Our second presenter is Dr. Carolyn Masisa, who's the Associate Director of Research Operations and Development here at Connecticut Children's. She received her bachelor's from the State University of New York at Potsdam her master's and her PhD degree from New York Medical College in the Department of Pharmacology. She completed two postdoctoral fellowships at Yale, one in pharmacology, a second in endocrinology. Dr. Masisa maintains joint professor appointments at the Frank H. Netter School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University and the Yale School of Medicine. She has multiple publications in the domains of basic clinical translational and healthcare communications research in metabolic bone disorders. Dr. Masisa serves as an advocate for the rare disease community and is chair of the scientific advisory board for the XLH network. Dr. Dunbar. Good morning. Thank you, Dr. Lapidus and Dr. Orsi for your introductions. So this morning, uh, we are going to talk about a a rare form of bone disease and the transformative treatment of rare disease in general. The disease we're talking about this morning is X-linked hypophosphatemia, and we're discussing it through the lifespan. I will be providing a bone, an overview of bone mineralization and pathophysiology of rickets. We'll be talking about vitamin D deficient rickets, the most common and well uh, recognized form, and comparing that to a rare form called X-linked hypophosphatemia. We'll review XLH rickets and the new exciting therapeutic options that are now available. Then Carolyn will be discussing adult XLH and its challenges, and hopefully the improved outlook that may exist now that we have better childhood therapeutics. 
So at the conclusion of this presentation, participants will be able to distinguish XLH rickets from acquired forms of rickets, such as vitamin D deficiency rickets. Explain the mechanism of action of the new therapeutic barosumab, a human recombinant anti-FGF23 antibody therapy that's now approved for X-linked hypophosphatemia. You'll be able to relate the primary comorbid features of adult XLH to physical function. And finally, list and compare the phase three primary and secondary endpoints for adults with XLH treated with barosumab. So to start, I just want to provide a general overview of rickets. We all know that rickets is a disease of children that disrupts bone development. It's something that's existed for decades, and it still exists today in our communities. Children will present with bone pain, poor growth, and soft undermineralized bones that lead to deformities, mainly in the lower extremity. The signs and symptoms of rickets include such things as delayed milestones, widened wrists, and uh, widened uh, knees at the distal ends of the femurs and the proximal tibias. And you'll see chest wall deformities in some children. Children will have a waddling gait, muscle weakness, and many will have short stature. On radiographs, it's very obvious when you see the, the distinct metaphyseal fraying and beaking, those widened growth plates and vagus or valgus deformities. Biochemistry might reveal high alkaline phosphatase and classically low serum phosphorus, but you may also see low vitamin D, high parathyroid hormone, and low or normal calcium levels. All of these uh, findings are grouped together under rickets. So there, the rickets can be divided into th those that present primarily with calcipenic rickets and phosphopenic rickets. The most common types are those we'll focus on today. So there's vitamin D deficiency versus renal tubular phosphate loss. This whole category is something that many of you will be unfamiliar with, and that's understandable. Those are the very rare, uh, less common forms of vitamin of, of rickets, but the, those are the forms that have taught us so much about the underlying disorder. In general, what we need to mineralize bone is both the presence of calcium and phosphorus at the growth plate. Alkaline phosphatase is a critical enzyme that allows the, uh, the joining of phosphorus to calcium to spur mineralization in the formation of hydroxyapatite. Underlying both forms, however, both vitamin D deficiency and forms that have loss in the, in the kidney of phosphate present with hypophosphatemia. So the metabolism of phosphorus is key to understand. And, in, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about phosphorus. It's a key mineral, yet it is missed sometimes because normal serum phosphorus values really vary with, with um, age, as you can see on the display on the right-hand side. Many labs don't even uh, present the childhood reference ranges. So normal serum phosphorus values are quite high in the normal neonate and infant and through early childhood years. But if only adult reference ranges are used, you can see that through childhood and into adolescence, the reference range falls dramatically into 2.5 to 4.5. That would be drastically low if that was the lab that was reporting on the infant or toddler. 
The other problem is phosphorus is not a part of the comprehensive metabolic panel. If you're just doing a normal workup to see something's not right with this child I'm looking at and you order a comprehensive metabolic panel, phosphorus won't even appear. You'll get your calcium. You may think to include a vitamin D. Those things could be normal and you're left wondering what could be wrong and you will have missed a profoundly low phosphorus value. Phosphorus is widely available in our diet. It comes through, it's in most foods actually. The key part is absorption in the intestine, and that requires the activated form of vitamin D, 125 vitamin D. Then this provides the phosphorus into our blood, but we have to have appropriate reabsorption on our kidneys, and that requires another hormone, FGF23, as well as the action of PTH to be in homeostasis to allow appropriate reabsorption of phosphorus. In truth, almost 90% of our circulating forms of phosphorus are reabsorbed in the kidney, and that's what keeps us in homeostasis. About 80 to 85% of that phosphate is stored in bones. The other percentages are useful in phosphorylation uh, for ATP and cell signaling, and another portion is important for phospholipid and cell membrane maintenance. At the growth plate, this is where I want to spend some time because this is what is so important to understand. The normal growth plate at the end of long bones is dependent on phosphorus. So you, on the left-hand side of the slide, you're going to see a typical display that we all saw in medical school. And this is the chondrocytes as they progress from the growth plate down into the diaphysis of the bone. The normal process requires these chondrocytes to go through programmed cell death and be resolved, and then they get uh, ossified and form mineralized bone. In the absence of phosphorus, these chondrocytes can't go through programmed cell death. They don't die. They get this very broadened hypertrophied metaphysis. That's what causes the beaking, the fraying of the metaphysis. metaphysis. This problem as a growth plate is what leads to all the abnormalities we see on physical exam. So here's your child that you might see in clinic and you're struck. Something doesn't look right with this exam. It's all going back to the abnormalities, the, the deficiency of phosphorus at the growth plate. You will see widened wrists, widened knees. If the child is sitting, you can see on this photograph, I'm trying to get my pointer, you can see the line going across the lower rib cage. That's called a rachitic rosary. That's the costochondral junction. And that is uh, uh, that's hypertrophied in there with an excess of the hypertrophic zone. As well, you can see an indentation of the rib cage, which is the muscles being stronger than a bone. So they are pulling on the distal end of the rib cage, causing this indentation of the Harrison's groove. So I'd like to present to you a very recent case I had of a toddler referred to endocrinology. And the concern was this toddler had bowed legs. They weren't growing well. This toddler was exclusively breastfed for 15 months without any vitamin D supplementation. In addition, when the child transitioned into table food, the mother tried to go with the most nutritious uh, diet she could think of and was hearing about, and the, and the toddler was on a vegan diet with less than four ounces per day of almond milk. Historically, the, the child started walking at 12 months and then regressed. Now the child would only crawl or, or, or wanted to be carried. 
on history, there's no family history of lower extremity deformities, no family history of rickets, nor any type of metabolic bone disease. This was the first radiograph of the child. You can see right away your eye is drawn to that distal femur, the proximal tibia, and the extremely frayed metaphyses. There's bowing of the femur, there's bowing of the tibias, and the child would not. I would hold the child up and the child would lift the, his legs up off the exam table, did not want to bear weight. So automatically, I had all the clues I needed to know that this child was suffering from rickets. By history, it seemed very clear that the most likely problem was vitamin D deficiency based on the diet. Certainly, the presentation of these labs were more severe than I was anticipating. You can see this child had very low phosphorus. Serum phosphorus was 2.5. That's markedly low for a toddler. But there was also severely low calcium, which was an unusual finding for vitamin D deficiency rickets. The alkaline phosphatase was up in the 5,000s. That's the most severe case of rickets I've actually seen. And his vitamin D level was 8. It's very low, but still measurable. The parathyroid hormone, however, was in the 500s. So this poor child had very severe hypophosphatemic rickets. My presumption at this point is for, of severe vitamin D deficiency. Typically, vitamin D deficiency rickets, you treat with vitamin D. That's all that is required. In this severe case, though, this child re required both um, calcitriol in addition to vitamin D and calcium. So just remember, all infants need 400 to 800 units of vitamin D until they're taking an appropriate amount of formula that will provide them enough vitamin D. And this is uh, something that's been uh, promoted and guidance from the AAP since 2008. And just so all of you know, if any questions, we do have a vitamin D deficiency guideline available on our, our link website. So now we're going to transition and we're gonna leave the more um, common form of rickets, which is our, our vitamin D deficient rickets. And we're gonna move over to the acquired form, or excuse me, the genetic form of rickets. The most common form is known as X-linked hypophosphatemic rickets. And it's secondary uh, to a, mutetic, a genetic mutation of something called the FEX gene. So on the left-hand side of this diagram, you'll see that the FEX gene uh, is crossed out. So that mutation um, is primarily affecting um, function of FEX in the bone, where it's secreted and synthesized by osteoblasts and osteocytes. Now, animal studies indicate that the loss of this FEX uh, function increases the secretion of a hormone known, known as FGF23. FGF23's primary action is in the uh, renal tubules, where it causes uh, loss of, of phosphorus um, in, in, its, in its excess. So you have both decreased reabsorption of phosphorus, so your serum phosphate level suffers, but a secondary action of, of FGF23 is in the conversion of 25 hydroxyvitamin D to the active form, the 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. I know we're getting deep into the physiology right now, but bear with me, because the loss or the lack of adequate amounts of 125-vitamin D is critical because this means all the phosphorus that's available in our diet is not going to be adequately absorbed. So there's 
poor phosphorus absorption from the diet. In addition, there's excess losses of phosphorus in the kidney. So these uh, children and adults that are affected with XLH have this genetic mutation, genetic mutation, and they're going to have chronically low serum phosphate. There's no way to avoid profoundly defective mineralization in this type of scenario. You can see on the right-hand side is just a display of the histomorphometry, what this looks like. So in the, um, the upper panel, you see normal bone and a normal femur contrasted to the lower panel, where you see what a, a histomorphometric analysis of, of uh, XLH bone looks like. All that excessive reddish staining reflects under-mineralized bone. It's osteoid, osteoid without appropriate calcium and phosphorus being laid down via hydroxyapatite leads to very weak bones. So in childhood, symptoms often start between one and two years of age, but this is a lifelong disease with manifestations that, although they start in childhood, they go right into adulthood. And the <clears throat> phenotype can change based on the life, where you are in the lifespan. Children, the primary symptoms relate to the, the rickets. So there's lower extremity deformities. There's poor growth. You can see the display of growth charts that exist for XLH rickets now. Uh, with the boys on the left and the girls on the right. And over time, there's a loss of height so that typically uh, a child with XLH is going to be far below their predicted uh, midparental height. In adulthood, there's an X-ray in the lower right that shows what happens as a consequence of osteomalacia. That is uh, undermineralized bone that affects the adult skeleton. So these are weakened bones, there's pseudo fractures, there's uh, true fractures, and many adults end up with uh, uh, a lot of orthopedic surgery and, and hardware to help them um, with their uh, activities of daily living. This is one of my uh, patients that presented to me um, several years ago <clears throat> for short stature. This happens to be a three-year-old girl, and she had all of the, all of the features of XLH. Uh, she was short for her age. She had lower, lower extremity deformities. You can see her presentation of both uh, bowing of her knees, but also uh, a, a, a varus deformity of her ankles as well. She had some frontal bossing that reflects some craniosynostosis that can be part of this disorder. And she also had a chest wall deformity where she had a, a slight uh, pectus carinatum. When I looked at orally, she presented with a dental abscess, a painless dental abscess that she uh, was not aware of. Her parent wasn't aware of it, which but is classic for XLH. And in this family, there was uh, there was no family history, uh, but this was classic presentation of what we can see in X-linked hypophosphatemic rickets. <clears throat> So these are the very typical radiographs. We can see uh, in the, the top left-hand picture, you can see the wrist uh, with the irregular frayed metaphyses. You see the deformities in the lower extremity, x-rays with the, the irregular metaphyses at the growth plates. Um, and with a dental uh, panogram, you can see dental x-rays can show the abscesses. There's a small black arrow on the lower right-hand x-ray, and that is uh, 
pointing to what's known as a sterile abscess that's surrounding that tooth. <clears throat> and that can lead to a very severe infection and a loss of that tooth. In addition, children will have a decreased physical endurance. They will have much more muscle weakness than their peers, and they are at higher risk for hearing loss. So this is uh, an interesting genetics of this disease. It's X-linked dominant, meaning that affected fathers will, will have no affected sons, but all of their daughters would be affected with XLH. Whereas if you have an affected mother, each child, regardless of biological sex, has a 50% chance of inheriting XLH. 30% of, of people, though, don't have a family history. So we know that there's quite a few spontaneous mutations. It's a completely penetrant disorder, but the severity varies even within families, and there does not appear to be a gender difference. So management of XLH requires us to try to replete the phosphorus, which is poorly absorbed and renally lost on a continual basis. But we know with aggressive management and very compliant families, we can see improvement in rickets. There seems to be a possible uh, decrease in dental abscess formation. You can prevent progressive growth failure to some extent and a reduction in deformities in some patients. There seems to be a slight decrease in bone pain and um, uh, possible improvement in mobility, but it is all incomplete. The vast majority of patients will require orthopedic interventions. And the x-rays here show you a before and after of, of both a um, almost a windswept deformity on the middle radiograph that had to have two osteotomies, one of the right distal femur and one of the left <clears throat> proximal tibia to try to correct that deformity. On the right pair of x-rays, you can see a more typical bowed need or genu valgus deformity, and that was treated with guided growth, obviously only available to pediatric patients who are still growing, but you impair the growth plate on one side, which allows the unaffected side to grow more quickly, hopefully allowing um, some straightening of the deformity. It's a chronic, problem. However, we're pouring in phosphorus, but it's just leaking out through the kidneys. So this is what makes this such a difficult therapy. These children need to be given phosphorus three or five times a day and active forms of vitamin D, calcitriol, one or two times a day. Phosphorus causes diarrhea. It's a laxative. You can get abdominal pain. Abdominal pain. It doesn't taste good. And you have to constantly be monitoring. We don't want to overtreat. Uh, we can cause problems with hypercalcuria, nephrocalcinosis, and hyperparathyroidism based on our own therapy. <clears throat> Despite um, uh, this aggressive repletion of phosphorus, many children will still go on to have short stature, still develop significant lower limb deformity, and 40 to 70% of patients actually end up still requiring surgery. And the bottom line is that we're not doing anything to address the underlying issue of excess amounts of FGF23. And unfortunately, frequent do dosing of phosphorus, frequent dosing of calcitriol is likely to stimulate further FGF23 secretion. So <clears throat> this is another of my patients, and this shows you uh, the progression over time. So he, he the left-hand radiograph presents at, uh, at six years of age, and he has very severe deformities. Um, 
but he actually presented to thank you <laughs> he actually presented to orthopedics two years prior um, not at our facility and uh, was felt to have vitamin D deficiency rickets so which isn't a bad thought um, and was treated with vitamin D but he didn't get better and in fact his deformities got worse <clears throat> so he came to treatment at six years of age and was on conventional therapy and he had some improvement for sure he had some partial healing of his rachitic lesions as you can see in the middle uh, the central radiograph but by 16 years of age he still had significant deformities he was quite immobile he needed to walk with a walker in fact he had special accommodations at his school uh, he was riddled with um, horrible scoliosis as well. So he had a lot of morbidities um, despite being on therapy at that point for 10 years. He also grew very poorly, as you can see. He was uh, quite short um, throughout childhood and then really fell off um, in his adolescent years further below the typical um, growth uh, trajectory. So unraveling. XLH, the story of XLH and hypophosphatemic rickets has taken decades and decades of research. Uh, the, the story sort of started in the 1950s when it was established as an X-linked disorder by Dr. Fuller Albright. It was uh, 14 years later, it was recognized that it was an inborn error of phosphate transport that was responsible. Then a mouse model was de uh, developed that uh, led to XLH being discovered and that the mutation in the sex gene was responsible for XLH that was in the mid 90s serum for the from the hype mouse this mouse that uh, was able to demonstrate the the sex mutation was shown to inhibit phosphate uptake by a normal mouse and research has gone on and on until the early 2000 when finally FGF 23 neutralizing antibodies were found to normalize serum phosphorus and serum active form of, of vitamin D, the 125 vitamin D in the hype mouse. Now this was, uh, this was a, a very important um, finding that now led to potential therapeutics. And 15 years later, <clears throat> we've gotten to the point where the pivotal clinical trials were, were done over that span of time and led to this new therapeutic, this anti-FGF23 antibody called berosumab that is available for children uh, and adults with XLH. There were three pivotal clinical trials, uh, the top three in this chart, that involved a total of about 65 patients. This highlights when you're doing research in rare disease, you don't have hundreds and hundreds of patients to work with. So, the two first phase two studies used a total of 65 children. It was an open label study with endpoints looking at, will this therapy increase renal tubular phosphate reabsorption? Will it normalize circulating levels of serum phosphorus? Will growth and function improve? <clears throat> and then the, the, there was one phase three trial that was done that was also ran, was randomized uh, to compare FGF23 antibody therapy to conventional therapy. So I just want to give you um, a flavor of some of the data that came out from these clinical trials that led to this new therapeutic option. And here's some of the, uh, the uh, exciting research that was released that led to the ultimate um, FDA approval. On this 
graph, we display the results of the phase two trial of berosumab, and this was in 65 pediatric patients. <clears throat> the blue are the school-aged children. They're the ages five through 12, and the, the gold or the yellow dots are the toddler group, ages one through four. This data is overlying. This wasn't, they, they weren't done at the same time. The school-aged children were involved in a dose-finding study. So when you look at this timeline along the uh, x-axis, uh, you can see that that goes from uh, out to 64 weeks. But the first 10 weeks, it looks like the school-aged children did, did not have normalization of their serum phosphorus. That's because that data reflects the combination of a dose titration study. But the toddlers had availability, uh, that trial happened after the dose finding trial. So they started off on the right dose right away. And you can see that by the, the second week, their serum phosphorus jumped right up into the normal range. And the school-aged children got into the normal range when they got placed on the appropriate dose at the conclusion of the dose titration study. After both groups were on the therapeutic dosing between 10 and 16 weeks, their serum phosphorus mean average remained in the normal range for phosphorus uh, throughout the trial, which was amazing. The endpoints involved looking at radiographic changes of rickets, uh, look at, looked at uh, uh, whether the serum phosphorus normalized, looked at the uh, kidney handling of uh, phosphorus. And you can see in the radiographs, you're looking on the left-hand side, of the, the two baseline radiographs of a study participant showing the distal, uh, the metaphyseal fraying at the wrist on the left upper panel and the metaphyseal fraying, very irregular uh, growth plate around the knee on the lower left hand. And after 40 weeks of the anti-F23 therapy, you can see marked healing. There's still irregularities, particularly around the knee, but there is marked improvement already. The children manifested increases in their walking distance on something called a six minute timed walk. And they reported uh, self-reported improvements in pain and functional disability. Now the phase three uh, trial was a randomized open label trial of berosumab in comparison to the conventional therapy, which as I said, was just pouring in phosphorus as often as possible, um, as well as giving the calcitriol. On the upper left-hand panel, this is the most important piece of data. The uh, berosumab-treated uh, patients are in the blue. Immediately, their serum phosphorus jumps up into the normal range and remains in the normal range. And the conventional therapy never normalizes their serum phosphorus. The mid-panel uh, on the left-hand side shows you the normalization of the handling of the phosphorus in the kidneys, which is immediately normalized. Um, and over on the right-hand side, these are measures uh, that reflect how the rickets improved. So on berosumab, that's that bright blue bar compared to conventional, which is the purple bar. And improvement in rickets was demonstrated both at week 40 and week 64 very strongly on the group treated with berosumab with really no significant change on conventional therapy. On the bottom right, you can see the alkaline phosphatase data. In conventional therapy, it's in the in the purple. There's really there's a slight decrease um, over time on conventional therapy, but there's a marked decrease of the elevated levels of alkaline phosphatase on the berosumab therapy, which really reflected a near normalization of bone mineralization. 
and healing of rickets. So what is, how is this, uh, this therapy handled by children? It's a, it's a therapy that's given subcutaneously. Instead of taking multiple daily doses of oral medications, uh, the children have to take a subcutaneous injection once every two weeks for children. In adults, it's once every four weeks. Adverse reactions were uh, very through, very few. Both this uh, table displays all the adverse reactions reported in all the pediatric studies, and <clears throat> they were pretty much common childhood uh, illnesses. So headache, uh, GI upset, um, rashes, myalgias. The ones that are we think attributable to berosimab was an injection site reaction. Um, and uh, hypersensitivity reactions were reported at the site of the injection, but they were very transient and didn't require any additional medical therapy. So finally, before turning um, my portion over to Carolyn, I wanted just to show um, the patient that I'm managing uh, right now, uh, together with uh, Dr. Pierce in orthopedics. Uh, this was a two-year-old male who came to see me. He's now uh, four years older than that, six years of age, but he presented at age two with a history of delayed walking, lower extremity bowing, uh, cranial synostosis, pretty profound, and decreased endurance. And you can see these radiographs were pretty significant uh, with abnormalities. The interesting thing was his parents knew that he must have XLH because his mother had XLH, but she was very dismayed and um, basically hopeless because she never received um, uh, even per, she never received even consistent phosphorus throughout her childhood, and she wasn't aware that there was a change in the management of XLH. So once we were able to get this uh, child on berosimab therapy, after about 18 months, he had marked healing. I mean, look at the, the difference in his uh, lower extremity x-rays uh, by age four, and this was after one year on berosimab. Uh, the family couldn't believe the change in him and his level of energy and activity level um, was markedly improved. And by age seven, he's really accelerated his growth. He feels great. There's no um, sense of bone pain or discomfort. And this is his growth velocity. So when he, when he presented and we started on uh, uh, phosphorus and calcitriol initially, his growth was right around the 25th percentile. It improved a little bit just on the conventional therapy, which, what, which is what we hope it does. But once we got on berosimab, he really took off. And now he's approaching the 75th percentile for height and he's feeling so, uh, so good. And he's such a healthy, normal uh, young boy at this point. So I'd like to, at this point um, to turn uh, the talk over to Carolyn. Um, who will uh, talk about what this disease is like for adults. And, um, and with no further ado, Carolyn, Dr. Masisa. <laughs> um, here you go. Thank you. So um, the first question I'm going to ask you is, can you find what's wrong with this picture? And I've made it very easy for you because I added some great big arrows. And the first thing I want to point out is um, this is from Medscape, which is I just want to say is a wonderful resource for many patients and families. Um, however, this term hypophosphatemic rickets persists in on online materials and in the literature. And the problem with using the term hypophosphatemic rickets versus X-linked hypophosphatemia is that it suggests it is a solely a childhood disorder, which it is not. 
The other thing, the other disservice that it um, serves is that not all adults are actually diagnosed with X-linked hypophosphatemia. And that in fact, in all rare diseases, it takes seven to eight years to get an accurate diagnosis. So that's seven to eight years without, with a potential misdiagnosis, but also seven to eight years with inappropriate therapy or management. So it's important that we, um, that we use the nomenclature X-linked hypophosphatemia to take away from the notion that this is only a childhood disorder. The last thing I wanna um, point out here with this arrow is that in the prognosis, um, it says, um, apart from the short stature of most affected adults, the prognosis for a normal lifespan and a normal health is good. This is patently false. This is what an adult symptomatic adult looks like with X-linked hypophosphatemia. This is just a sampling of the um, x-rays from a cohort of patients that we studied. And in fact, it affects the entire upper body and lower body. So again, this is just a sampling. So some of the major comorbidities of adult XLH, which become radiographically evident by the second decade in life are these pervasive um, enthesophytes at the pelvis and we, at the pelvis, and we see um, a number of enthesophytes marked here. And those are the mineralizing bone spurs that occur at the insertion sites of tendon and ligaments. We also see enthesophytes here at the elbow and the olecranon, and um, also at the um, Achilles insertion and the plantar fascial surface. We see it again at the knee and the quadriceps insertion and the patellar insertion. Uh, we also see one of the most problematic or um, really the one that affects quality of life considerably are the calcification of the spine. And in this particular patient, we see a complete calcification of the anterior longitudinal ligament along the entire length of the spine. And what that results is in is a spine that's completely immobile. There is no range of motion. Adult patients can also have mineralization of the posterior longitudinal ligament and the ligamentum flavum. The other comorbidity of adult XLH is a degeneration of the cartilage or degenerative osteoarthritis. You can see that again, these are always bilateral. The enthesophytes and the um, degenerative osteoarthritis are global bilateral, and you can see the global loss of cartilage in the knees in this particular patient. So um, those comorbidities significantly affect quality of life and activities of daily living. And one important activity of daily living um, is gait and mobility. So we did motion analysis um, on the patient population um, compared to age and sex match controls. And you can see that um, velocity of, of the gait cycle, stride length, step width, and step length were all significantly affected. If we look at the trunk, we see in the sagittal plane that we see a permanent flexion again, in, in, of the trunk in the sagittal plane, which means that the individual is leaning forward and that they often have to undergo a physical posterior pelvic tilt in order to lift their head up enough so that they can see the path in front of them. In the frontal plane, 
what we see is a, a uh, medial lateral sway. And so this is the so-called waddling gait that's been described for XLH. And that is um, the uh, compensation that allows the individuals to clear the ground um, during the swing cycle of the gait cycle, during the swing phase of the gait cycle. Um, if we look across the, um, the joints, the hip, the knee, and the ankle, the simplest interpretation of these gait analysis is that there's a significant restriction in each one of these joints that contributes to the abnormal gait and also to um, quality of life. In the same cohort of patients, we did a mixed method study to identify the major challenges of adult of adults living with XLH, and we identified three major themes, pain, fear of falling, and the lack of credibility when they uh, when they uh, saw their their uh, adult primary care uh, clinicians. So pain is a significant part of adult XLH and it is certainly uh, dominates the quality of life. So pain is associated with the comorbidities that we just talked about. Um, and that's a lot of joint pain and the pain of the bone spurs, but also a really interesting feature of XLH is something we call bone pain. And that's related to the osteomalacia that you had just heard about, which is that unmineralized osteoid, as well as fractures and pseudo fractures. Another finding that we had was a significant fear of falling. And we now know that fear of falling itself is a risk of fall. This fear of falling also uh, correlates with isolation and lack of socialization, which also impacts the quality of life of these individuals. And then finally, we found um, in this study a lack of credence. And so this was the data suggested that they, um, they were often not believed by their degree of pain, by their healthcare providers, or were accused of drug-seeking behaviors. So um, a few weeks ago, there was a wonderful pediatric grand rounds that I attended um, and it re uh, that really struck me. And that was about uh, patient cancer survivorship in pediatrics. And so we have another example here of survivorship because with better therapies and treatments, children with rare diseases now live longer or survive into adulthood. And so that we need to think about adults with rare disease from that same sort of lens and that, that we now have to manage a new disorder. So we can see that in the spectrum of of the features of excellent type of phosphatemia from pediatric to adulthood, that there are a lot of these um, findings that are completely irreversible. The osteophytes, the athesophytes, the spinal stenosis, the, they're completely irreversible. There's many others too, the nephrocalcinosis, hearing loss, um, the dental abscesses. So the question is, is will burosumab actually help these individuals?
In fact, um, multiple clinical provo uh, reports provide evidence of the benefits of berosumab therapy for adults. And here's a list of a number of studies. And the things we see here are some of the primary outcomes. We see improvement of serum phosphate. We see improvement of of phosphate reabsorption in the renal tubule. We see normalization of 1-alpha hydroxylase and 125-D in these patients. The other studies um, more recently have shown significant improvements in secondary outcomes, including uh, pain and um, increased fracture healing and uh, significant improvement of osteomalacia. This is another study that looked at subjective improvement of stiffness, physical function, and pain using the Womack scale, and all parameters of these have improved in patients taking burosumab, most likely related to the healing of the osteomalacia and the healing of fractures, as well as the ability to move better without being interrupted with pain. There's also shown to be a subjective improvement in the severity of fatigue and the impact that fatigue has on their activities of daily living, um, their mood, their interactions with individuals, and the abilities to and their ability to function. So um, data from my lab using the height mouse that you heard about from Nancy um, has really provided a lot of insight. And these data strongly suggest that these adult features that, again, become evident within the second decade of life begin when phosphate wasting begins. So the hope is that if we treat these individuals early in life, and it is approved for um, individuals as young as six months of age, if we can treat them throughout childhood and throughout adulthood, that we may see a significant decrease in the severity of the adult presentation of XLH. So I just want to close with um, a, a piece here. I had the honor of working with uh, members of the XLH network community and with my colleague, Dr. Maya Doyle, who's a social worker, to create an XLH transitions toolkit. And this is a, um, a wonderful toolkit that ascribes to the notion, you'll see here, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that parents and doctors begin a transition plan by the age of 12 years of uh, 12 years old. And so we created this document that helps young adults to understand therapies, healthcare, things like going to college, going to work, and even in dealing with relationships and having those conversations. It's a wonderful example of, of helping young adults transition to adulthood. And I welcome any of you to use this as a illustration of helping our kids transition from um, a childhood disorder to adulthood. Um, I would like to thank all of those patients who engaged in studies with me. Um, I've never met such wonderful, tenacious, and amazing individuals, and they uh, continue to inspire me um, every single day. Thank you very much, and Nancy and I will entertain any questions that you might have. Thank you both so much. That was a really inspiring discussion, and we are so fortunate to have both of you as part of the research efforts here at Connecticut Children's. Thank you. There were several questions that came through. So 
The first one is, would you comment more on the safety profile of berosumab? We've been very uh, interested to see as these clinical trials were uh, completed and the results were uh, made um, public through academic meetings over the years and it's been very encouraging of, of the safety profile. It's um, really <clears throat> limited to uh, primarily just local site reactions. Um, there doesn't seem to be any significant uh, problems apart from these uh, injection site reactions. Uh, that list of adverse events that included very typical pediatric um, illnesses such as fever, arthralgias, headaches, um, the rashes, that was felt not to be uh, primarily related to the berosumab treatment, but just needed to be reported as part of the clinical trial um, as, 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 it, as it should have been. Um, so we're very encouraged at this point, uh, obviously staying cautious that we're only, um, you know, a little ways into this and, and everyone is interested to see long term how this plays out over decades of, of utilization. Another question, do you think patients and families understand the difference in nomenclature and outcomes? And how can we make these points clear to the average person family, whether that's online or in the office in clinical practice? So I'm just gonna comment on that. So I, I review a lot of manuscripts and all the manuscripts that come across my desk that use the term you know, vitamin D um, resistant uh, rickets or hypophosphatemic rickets, I always make a effort to correct it to use a nomenclature X-linked hypophosphatemia. And um, that the first screenshot that I showed was actually provided to me by a, um, a, a one of the patients that I worked with who used to be a practicing lawyer and her disability became so severe that she had to stop practicing law, but she then reinvented herself as an online blogger uh, for the XLH community and also a very gifted writer of mysteries. So part of her online sleuthing <laughs> is to find these sources. She's the one that sent me the MedLink, um, MedLine link. And to um, she puts a lot of effort into communicating with um, others to correct the nomenclature so that it does not get misinterpreted as just being a childhood disorder. And I would like just to comment there as well. Vitamin D resistant rickets is still a terminology that is used to describe um, X-linked hypophosphatemia. And that goes back to the early discovery of this disorder when uh, people would see these, uh, Dr. Fuller Albright saw these children with these profound deformities, this profound bone disease, and the only thing at their disposal was just incredibly high dose vitamin D. So these children were treated with um, like 50 to 100,000 units of vitamin D daily and sometimes higher. And interestingly, for maybe one or two, three months, things looked to be getting better. But then that vitamin D toxicity kicked in, as we know, if we took a 100,000 units of vitamin D every day, we are going to push up our serum calcium levels. So unfortunately, what this did was he, they were forcing absorption of phosphorus at the gut, increasing both serum calcium and phosphorus, but then becoming profoundly hypercalcemic with calcium levels about 14 in order to get the serum phosphorus up into the normal range. So clearly that wasn't gonna work. So as they went down to lower vitamin D doses, everything just went back to 
hypophosphatemia. So that is why this, this uh, terminology of vitamin D resistant rickets came up. And you'll still see that in the literature, as Carolyn talked about, and some, and some of our uh, older uh, colleagues still use that terminology, uh, which is understandable. That's how uh, many decades, that's how it was described. There was a question um, regarding the potential risk of infection or malignancy being increased with borosumab. Could you comment on further on that? Um, we haven't seen any um, incidents of uh, of a lot of, of infection or malignancy um, with with borosumab. Infection, um, I'm assuming, is related to uh, the site reactions that for the first 24 or 36 hours can look red and sometimes be indurated, but then that again is, is uh, transient. Um, and I'm not aware of any malignancy uh, that has been connected to perosumab. I think many people often associate rickets and these types of issues with more developing environments and developing countries. Um, <laughs> So it's really been enlightening to see the potential and recent patients that you've taken care of right here in Connecticut. Do you have any specific recommendations for the pediatricians that are listening in today on what they should be watching for or screening for on a regular basis? I think that's a that's a great question. And um, I think one of the ways to think about lower extremity deformities and uh, delayed motor milestones um, is I think everyone appropriately uh, commonly thinks about rickets and it's very common to measure a, a 25 hydroxy vitamin D level, uh, but it's less common to look at an alkaline phosphatase level and it's very rare, unfortunately, to look at a serum phosphorus level. So I think the message is if you're worried that you're looking at a child uh, that has prolonged physiologic bowing of, of toddler, but it lasts longer or it seems more severe then I would uh, recommend measuring a serum alkaline phosphatase level, a serum phosphorus level um, as your, as, and, and 25 hydroxy vitamin D is fine, but really the answer is going to lie in what's happening in the alkaline phosphatase. Is it elevated for age? And is that serum phosphorus level low? The last thing I'll say, and this is a nuance, but it's an important nuance, is that you really need these labs to be collected fasting. Serum phosphorus is in lots of foods. If you eat and you measure your serum phosphorus within 60 to 90 minutes, it's going to look a whole lot different than it will look in another 90 or in three hours, because that's the time it's going to take for that blood to be filtered out, and you're going to get back to your low level if you've got an impairment of your renal tubular handling. So measuring serum phosphorus fasting will avoid uh, getting a falsely reassuring normal serum phosphorus level. So alkaline phosphatase, serum phosphorus, in addition to your 25-hydroxy uh, vitamin D. So I'd like to thank everyone so much for joining us today for this amazing research grand rounds. And thank you both, Nancy and Carolyn. This has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at ConnecticutChildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.